0: Hello and welcome to the Hopkins Biotech Podcast Insights segment, where we investigate major topics that are shaping biotechnology today. For updates about upcoming guests, follow us on social media, and visit us at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com to check out our full catalog of episodes. I'm your host, Joe Varielli. Our guest today is Dr. Anupam Chakravarti. Anupam is a researcher whose research interests has straddled the disciplines of biochemistry and genomics with a keen focus on the biology of cancer. Currently, he is a senior scientist developing liquid biopsy assays and products in the precision oncology space at Gardent Health. Prior to joining Gardent Health, he ran his own lab as an assistant professor at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. He obtained his PhD from Sloan Kettering in New York City and was a Damon Runyon Cancer Research Foundation fellow at Stanford. Anupam is motivated by a strong sense of community building and being deeply invested in the graduate education landscape. He is building and managing a global community of graduate students called the Grad Grid on LinkedIn. He lives in the Bay Area with his wife and a cat, enjoys the outdoors and has a strong academic interest in learning about the world through the lens of postage stamps. Anupam, thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Hey, th- thanks, Joe, for that lovely introduction and, uh, and welcoming me to uh, the, bio- the Hopkins Biotech podcast.
0: Yeah. I uh, I really like your story, and and I think I just want to let you tell it. Um, I, I mentioned briefly here about your transition from grad school to then um, a, a really great postdoc at Stanford, and uh, eventually mm-hmm. starting your own lab to then um, moving into industry. So uh, you know, I, I think you talk about this beautifully in, in conversations that I've had with you. So um, I just want to let you go and and sort of talk about that journey, and and uh, we'll sort of get into some of the details um uh once you're finished giving us that that introduction.
1: Yeah, sure, sure. Happy to do that and uh I mean uh we can um I you can pause me at any time. I'll sort of try to build a chronological story, but uh as you as one can imagine with most of these things it's sort of this this this, this tangents and other things and so on and so forth. So, yeah, so uh maybe circle back a, a long time ago. uh I was I started my uh sort of interest about sort of I I got interested about questions surrounding the chemistry of life a long time ago. Um in fact, uh was fascinated. My 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 father was a professor of immunology and kind of got was fascinated by this by these books and images that that he often had lying around uh, of like these these things that one that one could never see with the naked eye, but were so critically important in in helping us be who we are Uh, like and I used to be continually amazed by uh, like how all of these things had to work and fit fine and perfectly for us to be just walking along doing just a normal task of having breakfast going to school and and all of that stuff Uh, so anywho uh, long story short I what was particularly fascinating to me was that these, all of these sort of logics are written uh, through the language of chemistry. So I started out uh, in as an undergrad in chemistry in India at uh, St. Stephen's College and thereafter at IIT where I got my master's, uh, but with always a keen interest in applying that to biological systems. And uh, grad school in the United States was sort of a perfect opportunity to do that. Uh, I got, uh, I was, it was a little bit spoiled for a choice, but I, when I was applying, when I was starting out to graduate school, and I was particularly intrigued by this program called the Tri-Eye program uh, in chemical biology, which sort of seemed to be a program right out of my dreams. Like this was 2008, so like chemical biology, literally what I wanted to do, like understand um, biology through the lens of chemistry. And it was at a place uh, in New York City. Uh, it was uh, the three institutions involved were Cornell, Rockefeller, and Sloan Kettering. I had heard a a great deal about them but again being from india being an immigrant i had no idea about the geographical locale of where any of this was i mean i guess this was early days of google maps so i didn't bother checking on and then i i land to grad school and smacked out in the of the Manhattan right? <laughs> right right it's like and all of these three institutions are literally sharing a street corner and that sort of uh, was really an amazing academic environment to be. I imagine uh, much like it is in Johns Hopkins as well, uh, where like a lot of great discoveries and sort of you you get to hear those early stories, those early discoveries into the various aspects around life. So it was truly a formative experience for me um, to be uh, in in that sort of environment. And I mean, literally some of the things that I even work with today at my work in Garden Health, where we are literally chasing problems of precision oncology, a lot of that work was done at Sloan Kettering. And like all these MSK impact panels, like where we are mapping these cancer genomes and so on and so forth. These were early days when I was a grad student. My focus wasn't on those things when I was a grad student. Uh, we were more interested in fundamental questions of uh, biochemistry and structural biology. Those are the main tools I was using to understand uh, nucleic acid processing. Um uh, yeah, so anywho, after finishing my PhD, I was sort of I I had a particular liking, and again, sort of harking on this uh chemistry, uh like trying to use chemistry to understand biology angle. I sort of was always I had some favorite molecules going along the way. And RNA happened to be one that I was particularly interested in the start of grad school. And I was I was just fascinated about how RNAs and proteins talk to each other, and that enabled sort of this uh this crosstalk uh, between environment and and genotype, and which ultimately led to traits and so on and so forth. Uh, So that sort of prompted a postdoc at Stanford in a lab that was just starting out, that was looking into prions. So prions are these wacko agents of inheritance, which were sort of at that point in time, like sort of thought to have a very limited uh, role in the realm of biology and mostly explained in terms of diseases but as it as often happens in biology many of these things are uh often first noticed in diseases but are rarely just limited to role in in that context um so uh so this uh my my previous advisor's lab uh, he had just sort of finished his postdoc uh with susan lindquist at the whitehead and sort of had just seen some early evidence in some of the screens he had done for that many proteins could in fact behave as prions or as protein-based genes. And we sort of wanted to understand the molecular biology and the biochemistry of it, sort of literally understand these missing links of genotype to phenotype landscape, which we often think are driven by DNA and RNA, but hey, here were these proteins that would explain some of this missing heritability in some of these phenotypes we were unearthing. Uh, so, so investigated a lot of that, and this sort of uh, actually led to my interest in connecting genotype and phenotype, and really seeing this whole idea that uh, of how this whole structure function landscape sort of goes both ways. Like you can start out at structure, go to function, and then also go the other way around. If you're sort of uh, harking the uh, the uh, the angle of genetics,
0: yeah. So at this point, it sounds like these are ruminations of you being an academic and. Thinking about starting your own lab, and I, I know we're going in that direction. I just wanted to interject and find out throughout this whole process of grad school and postdoc, mm-hmm. were were you hyper focused on the academic path? I mean, knowing where you ended up today, right, working in industry, but but in a position that seems very much research focused. Um, mm-hmm. Did you did you have this academic mindset? Given too that your your father was a, an immunologist. In uh, a professor, mm-hmm. were you swayed at any point to pursue uh, other paths or
1: other opportunities outside of academia? I think that's an excellent question, and uh, because uh, when I started out in grad school, I kind of sort of looked to, I, I, as you said, like I was I uh, with my dad being in the ac- in academia too. Uh, this sort of seemed like. A path that I had seen before and seemed kind of natural. So yeah, I was quite interested in it. I was mostly driven, like rather than the academic path per se. Like I was really interested in sort of the questions that I was going to. And of course, being in academia when you're doing these things, you realize you start seeing it in pretty strong detail about what the pluses are and minuses are. Sort of let's say somewhere in the middle of uh my Postdoc, I certainly saw a lot of my friends who had started grad school with sort of start to explore opportunities uh, beyond academia as well. And I was I was living in the Bay Area. And again, this was one place where like um, among a few others in this country and, and around the world uh, where the, the boundaries between academia and industry are sort of more blurred. And I saw a lot of my friends like like just seamlessly integrate on the other side. Which often was sort of thought as the other side, but being like, mm, they're more blended than this thing. And and I think there has been an increasing realization uh, in the halls of academia, maybe albeit a little too slowly. Uh, I must, I may argue, especially in some places over others, um, where these like, like, there's like, oh no, there's this is academic way of thinking and this industry of thinking. Yeah, there are differences. Of course, there are differences. But uh, now, and I can speak to that more given now that I've experienced it sort of uh, on, on both sides of that aisle um, and yeah and you're right so I started my own lab after my postdoc and this was about around the time when the pandemic hit and uh, like for many it sort of really allowed me time to sort of pause and think about hey uh, what is it that I want to do really going forward and yeah I did have a strong academic interest will continue to do so uh have an active interest in research. Uh, but I did realize that uh, one of the things, especially with like after the hitting of COVID and everything else, like which often gave which gave many of us a pause to think about what the career options could be going forward. Uh I had just started my lab and things really slowed down. It slowed down to a trickle uh, on the lab supply fronts, and as well as sort of how some of the um, hiring and everything else was going on. So uh, it sort of really allowed me to pause and think a little bit more about my career choices. Uh, even. And uh, I, I could have very well—I con- was on the tenure track. I could have continued to be to pursue it, and and but then I realized that I think one one of the things that many of us really during COVID was that time is limited. Uh, and uh, things were really slowing down in academia. And I also wanted to reevaluate my priorities a little bit in terms of what I want to do with the time that I have. Uh, <laughs> um, and uh, kind of really, I think COVID really truly hit home the idea that like, hey, time's limited, let's get things done like really, really quickly. And that in some ways actually prompted uh me to sort of start thinking. Uh and I had been familiar with how some of the industry in the especially in the precision health space operated. Um, I've had friends there and also people who I've known for a while in that field. And I just uh was curious to see like if if some opportunities if would, would pique my interest. And so it was really uh, a decision of choice at that point to like say, hey, I I I understood that it's a it's a little bit unconventional to sort of move on from a tenure track role, uh, but uh, I was like, hey, no, I I I think I truly found my calling in, in that space. So
0: yeah, yeah. So you talk about time being limited, and I I definitely um, I, I feel that from both the standpoint uh, of you know personally, how, how do you want to spend your time? Um, you know, having a family doing the things that you mm-hmm. want to do. but mm-hmm. also, you know, having the most amount of impact with the time that you put in. Um, exactly. before we go into specifically what you do at now at Garden Health, um, can you talk about what impact you saw that you could have uh, in an industry role versus you running your own lab?
1: Yeah. Uh, No, I think that's an excellent question. And I think, uh, and like, and thanks for double clicking on that. So the time is like, what is it that you can do within a given time? And then how quickly the things that you're doing can affect large sections of the society. Uh, So uh, definitely the sort of the output of research uh, that can then be used by large sections of the society. I had little doubt that the timeline for that would be much more compressed in an industry setting versus what I'd be doing in my own lab. Like uh, the differences that sort of exist is that in the context of your own lab, even though there are lots of collaborations and so on and so forth, you still are limited in resources uh, in the sense that sort of really... To get an idea uh, from like it's really earliest stages to a stage where it's really impacting the lives of people it often takes the entire lifetime or of, of, of someone's career. Like for, for a lot of labs that have like done so, like you can probably have maybe like literally what I'm saying is I'm going from concept to a product in the uh, that affects the lives of people that can take a fair amount of time. Whereas in industry, uh, I always felt that uh, because you're working, you're you're, you're working with problems that are perhaps a little more de-risked than the problems that one is working with in academia. uh, You are also means you're closer to sort of impacting the lives of people, and uh, I I think with the pandemic, which was perhaps a pretty strong communal experience for a lot of us in the world, uh, like because all of us were in it together, <laughs> uh, I the the aspect of uh, like really working on something that could affect the lives of people in a really short amount of time was something that I was particularly attracted by.
0: Yeah. And I think that, you know, a lot of our listeners that that will resonate with them and, and thinking about their own career paths. Let's talk now a bit about where you are now and um, mm-hmm. what you do with garden health. So, just to sort of level set and maybe define a few terms, gar- Garden Health is focused on precision oncology. You've mentioned that a couple mm-hmm. of times. So, so maybe let's, um, you know, in your words, define precision oncology and um, you know liquid biopsies for cancer. That's another big mm-hmm. term right now, uh-huh. um, relatively new innovation that's having a lot of clinical impact currently. Yeah. Um, so, so let's talk about those two concepts, and then you can explain um, maybe a bit about what the Garden Health differences and, and what space you're working in?
1: I think one of the biggest realizations that has happened in the world of cancer, like uh, within our, within my lifetime for sure, uh, uh, is uh, uh, that it's not one disease. This is, this is very well understood now. That Hey, it's not one disease. There are multiple different ways you can, it's not one disease, it's not like having the typhoid or the flu or something like that. It's the differentiation aspect of cancer has been well understood, and that those theories are being well developed. I think the increasing realization that has happened maybe in the last 15, 20 years, 15 years or so is that even when you're talking about one particular cancer, it's not the same disease in one individual versus another. That has sort of led to the idea of in general of personalized medicine or precision health it's like finding a cancer therapeutic that once that works for one set of individuals even though they let's say they may have a particular kind of colorectal cancer versus the one and so and so forth and one of the things that has enabled this is sort of the understanding of cancer genetics like what is the underlying genotypic landscape of individuals and here come and you also use the term liquid biopsy and so let's come to that side of it so precision oncology is essentially finding uh, is is sort of laying out the landscape of cancer in terms that is more precise than saying things like oh it's called rectal cancer it's like oh no it's cancer driven by this particular mutation in this individual so that's that's how, that's the whole goal of precision oncology is to sort of define cancer more precisely, and therefore hope to treat it in a more personalized manner. Uh, coming to the term of liquid biopsy, so we, you know, the term biopsy is perhaps pretty familiar to anyone in the in the realm of biomedicine, uh, which often involves like essentially characterizing the tumor that uh, that one has in, in the context of cancer, but uh, and again, cancer is a disease that uh, perhaps uh, is also very personal at, at many levels, and this is something that I um, sort of, as I said, my research had focused on cancer throughout the throughout my tenure, like sort of realizing that it's a personal battle. Like almost everyone. N- know someone very close near and dear to them who has had to battle cancer and uh it's just such an omniprevalent disease and i think i mean again it's a someone very close to me like had uh had a cancer in the kidneys and i do do remember one of the issues being that hey we couldn't reasonably diagnose uh, that they had kidney cancer like or definitively like i began being a chemical biologist like okay what's the what's the molecular proof that this is kidney cancer and not something else um it was like oh we can't give you none there were just some images and one of the reasons being we couldn't biopsy it because kidney is pretty deeply located in the human body and it's highly vascularized and just it's super invasive to get that information uh, uh, beforehand. So essentially in this particular context, the person had to progress through surgery and only then you could do a post-surgical biopsy to confirm that it was the case. Now, the idea of liquid biopsy is to diagnose, it's a cancer diagnostic tool, it's to diagnose the cancer and, and identify the tissue of origin and so on and so forth from blood. So instead of having to do an invasive biopsy, where tissue has to be, where where material has to be sourced from uh, the site of the cancer, you you just do a regular blood draw, and then uh, find out about the cancer. And the heart of it, what lies is as that of, of cell free DNAs or cfDNAs, uh, which essentially is like most of, most once you once there are tumors in the human body, they do shed DNA, and those signatures are. It's in very minute uh, quantities, so it's so essentially it's it's bit it becomes a bit of a needle in a haystack problem because it's it's present in very minute quantities in your blood, uh, because the the vast majority of the signal is the blood cells and so on and so forth the normal DNA, but there's a very tiny amount of cell free DNA uh, which can come from tumors and essentially it's mapping those and Garden Health is the first company that actually sort of had an if had the first. FDA approved uh, liquid biopsy test. It's called GARDEN360. Uh, they were the pioneers in the field and have continued to sort of push the frontiers uh, in this uh, area. Uh, and as you may imagine, this goes hand in hand with the development of uh, the NGS methodologies that have enabled really querying these DNA molecules uh, that, uh, that are present in the blood.
0: Yeah, that's a great introduction to the concept. <clears throat> if you could maybe now describe how, um, you know, from a diagnostic standpoint, um, mm-hmm. identification of a tumor uh, and maybe origin of the tumor or or something specific about the tumor genotype um, can lead to better outcomes for patients. Mm-hmm. Because at the end, mm-hmm. you know, diagnosis is very important, um, but mm-hmm. there's a through line to developing the right type of Treatment for a given person can can you explain how that paradigm works?
1: Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's an excellent question, and this is sort of the burgeoning field of companion diagnostics, and that is an, a, a discipline in its own right at this point. Because so it's and let me make an attempt to try to explain this. So essentially, a lot of these development goes hand in hand with therapeutic companies. Uh, so let's say. Uh, Uh, And again, this is sort of I'm trying to explain it in in the way I understand it uh, as almost and almost you can almost take this as a layman's approach to understanding this space. So essentially, let's say uh, a particular pharma company X has a has a drug, Y, uh, which uh, when you're designing the trials and so on and so forth, say that, hey, it can um, because you set out the guidelines before when you're when you're trying to. When you're trying to get this drug FDA approved say it works in cancer patients uh over um let's say i don't know you you set up a, a selection criteria like let's say male over 60 years of age and boom you try out the drug and you find out the efficacy of that drug is only works in maybe one third of the cases and you had set up you you had pr- proceeded to set a higher bar for the drug to cross uh, for it to be approved and then Lo and behold, that can't happen. And it just sits in the pipeline of failed drugs that many, many, that that is a pretty abundant thing in the cross companies. companies. Uh, instead, if you would be able to say that, oh, no, we would go after this particular, let's say, E2K mutation in, in RAS, that's how we're going to subset our population, not by this generic marker of like a male over 60 or some other Pretty broad phenotypic trait, but instead a more molecular driven genotypic trait. Uh, then you see that hey, it works wonders, and uh, in many cases it does. It's about subsetting it to the right population. So really, the development of diagnostic tool goes hand in hand with therapy. And you're right, like so there is so that. So the and there are many many cases um, uh, that. And again, that that that, ha- that has emerged from sort of the the like the real true success story of uh, many of these diagnostic companies is essentially being able to find those populations of people that where these drugs that either weren't made it to the market and not being able to serve these populations has happened because of this, uh, or uh, just these personal stories where uh, where where uh, like essentially cancers can be cured, uh, and even in some cases, because you knew what the underlying genotype was because of the diagnostic tool employed. One of my favorite things to that end is when we have our company uh, all hands uh, every month, Um, there's an aspect uh, uh, which has been a longstanding garden tradition I hear, um, but it's particularly dear to me, uh, is we have a patient story. Uh, That's how we started off because because often when you're working in lab or, or just really involved knee deep into the lab processes, one can tend to lose the uh, like the impact that our work is having. But then to hear some of these patient stories sometimes from their own, sometimes they themselves are here and you get to hear like, hey, it's that visit to the oncologist that everyone dreads. And then you hear this and and then boom, like once they had one of these uh, uh, diagnostic um Diagnostic tests, which could molecularly identify and type their cancer, uh, they were able to like get on a drug uh, from a from a company and literally be in remission, and and in many cases have 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 an increased increased life because really the gift of time. And again, this comes back to the idea of time. It's like because essentially you've given them more time to experience their loved ones and experience the world, and yeah. that that I think is is truly beautiful
0: yeah that's so important for you as a senior scientist mm-hmm. are you running programs are you um you know are you running a a mini academic lab within the company um are are there aspects to it that are truly you know research and development academic like work
1: yeah so i uh i work in research and early development at Garden so essentially we are uh i i work in in a pretty cross-functional team so i sort of matrix manager team we focusing on uh on developing the the next generation of current assays uh and uh again coming back to sort of the speed that often is there in industry i think i feel like i feel incredibly fortunate to have been part of this team because uh um, just in, in my time here which is coming in about closing in on a year we we are now at a stage where. Um, we we're actually, we just, we just made an announcement where we we've announced this, uh, next set of, this sort of is the found is the platform for the next set of garden tests. I work on this platform. We just, we just made an announcement and it's now available to, 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 to be used in patient samples. So we really had a product launch even in my short time here. And i tr- I truly feel blessed and fortunate to that, that's have really had cool. that seeing, impact.
0: Seeing something. Yeah. In fruition. Yeah.
1: It's right. Right. Fun. Right. And again, to come back to my day to day role, as you're saying. So, like, uh, yeah, I, I come, I, I come at it primarily from, a, from my background, sort of developing the assay. So, really understanding the, from the molecular side of things. But my past has sort of, uh, I was the first postdoc in my in my postdoc lab and we often had to just get together like hack together things and 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 build things one of the fun things that I did as a postdoc was hacking an Illumina sequencer for RNA binding imaging so, so that spirit is there in, in Garden, uh, for sure. Like when you're, when you're doing these early concept things. But then once it's done, then you really need to involve teams who are truly exp- experts. So, I routinely work with the software teams, the automation teams in, uh, in sort of, and act as the bridge between them to integrate our assays and make sure that, it can actually be a stable product line because to take some, to take an assay that works and then to make it into a product. Um, yeah, there are some hoops to cross there.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It's nice to know that even in this, you know, well-formed company, there's still kind of an underdog spirit and wanting to try to, um, get, get these products to market and, um, try to help patients. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, I think putting the patient, patients first, that's a garden, um, uh, it's a garden uh, spirit that that's, I think is at the core of garden spirit, and then essentially making every moment matter. I think these are the two phrases that we often hear within our halls, and 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 yeah, I mean, we, yeah. we we've been here about t- about ten years. Uh, garden has been here about ten years, but uh, yeah, it's I think that spirit, that entrepreneurial spirit, certainly exists.
0: So moving away from your day job to something that I guess we could call your your passion project. So you co-founded a group on LinkedIn, GradGrid, and I think a lot of our listeners may be familiar with GradGrid, but for those who aren't, um, it's really a a place for people to come together to talk about the graduate experience. And uh, Mm -hmm. it's really a people helping people type of group um, that's amassed a a large number of followers since its inception. Can can you Mm -hmm. explain in your words what GradGrid is and talk to us about some of the motivations that you had in starting the group?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. So uh, GradGrid is essentially the, we we call it the career networking group for PhDs. Uh, And this was a one of the first pandemic projects. Like I, I, I'm certain you had pandemic projects too uh, that that, uh, that that many of us had, and this is one of the ones that sort of really garnered enough interest that now it has become a real project. And as you said, often doubles up as my second job. <laughs> so this was an idea that my that my good friend uh, Parag Mahanti, who uh, who who I went to college with, uh, that both of us had um, over. Uh, uh, the and the the idea was sort of really what what motivated us to think more about this space uh, is um, you see people who go to school for much uh, and' I'm, I'm simplifying some of the some of the thoughts here a little bit. but like you, you see people go to MBA school and they come out with easily a thousand connections on LinkedIn if you were to just take that like, that as a metric. Uh, And people who go to grad school for at least twice as long, if not longer, um, and then people then who thereafter go to postdocs, maybe come out with 20 connections, or 30, or maybe a few, maybe 100 or so in the best of scenarios, but like, there seems to be a gap here. And uh, and essentially, most students and, and postdocs that I've known through my time in academia, um, and the same is true for Prague, are, are pretty good conversationalists. So it's just like, so then why is this not happening? Because I you can rarely do any of these things alone. I have learned a lot from my community of of uh, of students and, and postdocs and, and so on and so forth that I have been exposed to. So we we're like, why not uh, try to sort of build that Uh on on the web when and given the during the start of the pandemic and the ensuing months that followed a lot of us were sort of cooped up in our homes and really needed an outlet uh to sort of go out there and interact and again this sort of goes hand in hand as i said sort of with the idea that there was this whole academia and then there's industry but sort of these silos if you will and like realizing that and also coming at it from the fact that maybe there aren't they, they are not that silo, and more conversations need to happen across the board. So just, we wanted a place for that. And uh, that's sort of really what led to the idea of GradGrid. When I, when I, yeah, in the early days of the pandemic, there were about maybe 500 or odd followers. But now, yeah, as you mentioned, we're about 10,000 strong and have a global footprint. And it sort of really became what started out as like, hey, let's see if this works, really became grew into something now that where we feel almost responsible for wanting to continue and and manage this community. And, uh, and yeah, and we'll be, and as it, as it often happens in, in communities, once you reach a certain threshold, it sort of starts to become self-sustaining and, and yeah. So, yeah, so that, that's, that's what Red Grid has been about. And, and and I'm glad to hear that that many of your listeners have, have found it, um, useful for for whichever step of their careers they find themselves in.
0: Yeah. So so I guess what are some testimonials on the use of Gradgrid that you've heard? I'm, I'm sure as you know one of the co-founders and managers, mm-hmm. you you get some feedback. So what types of experiences do people have on the platform um, that that might be relevant to to somebody listening?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So couple come to mind. That actually happened pretty recently to me on GradGrid. Um I mean, because often we are working on GradGrid, and then you don't get to hear we are connecting people, and and a lot of connections often happen organically on that platform as well. Um, you don't always get to hear what the end of it is. When we don't necessarily it's it's a pro bono organization. We don't uh we have not monetized it for any purposes and so on and so forth. Uh but uh this was particularly heartening to hear. So someone I went to grad school with, uh, works in the medical writing space, uh, in New York. And, uh, just this message out of the blue on a Monday morning, like, Hey, you know, I had formed some connection with, uh, with someone in this, in this graduate community. And this person decided to join our organization and has been a true star. And like, really, this was, um, like sort of a, the inorganic, the organic connections we were able to form in grad really set the path for this. And this was someone I went to grad school with, the person who had hired this individual. And I had no role to play this. I didn't connect them. I didn't go ahead personally connecting people, which I often do. Uh, so this was particularly heartening to see like, you know, how a community grows and these connections, things form without you having to be involved in, it, in every bit of it. The other bit uh, is so, as I mentioned to you as we were talking the earlier part of this conversation, that uh, the transition from being a PI to then thinking of of looking for jobs outside the academic world, how did that go? And so on and so forth. Uh, One of the aspects of it uh, was that I didn't know a lot of people, a lot of professors who had made that kind of a transition at that stage of their career. But again, thanks to GradGrid, and this is after I had made the transition, I have had people reach out to me like, hey, I am so-and-so and and, and, an associate professor here. I'm thinking of moving into industry space. And uh, do you know any anyone? And the reason I sort of give this example is because in the first case, I had no role to play. And it was just the community doing its magic. In the second case, I, again, because of having this almost second job, uh, got got an opportunity to introduce this person to people that had known on the other side of the aisle a little bit more, and so forth, and and kind of, and this person's now also has uh, has a role in industry and, and doing really well. So in the second case, sort of this was a more personally involved testimonial, if you will, in the first case, just kind of was a community aspect. And there are many, many examples of this. And it happens to not just me, but the other uh, fantastic community managers we have had uh, on this community as well.
0: Yeah. And I think it speaks to sort of the aligned mission between our organizations with the Hopkins Biotech podcast and GradGrid Mm -hmm. is that um, there's that aspect of hearing other people's stories and not fully understanding that something is possible until you hear it. You know, we, we've had plenty of people on who were named professors and they decide to, you know, join a, a venture capital or they decide to go, um, you know, into industry to run a company. Right. And, um, and and so many of those situations are uh, hearing about somebody's experience and thinking, OK, somebody else has done it so that I can do it. Um, right. So, so I, I really like that aspect of it um thinking about you know maybe the future at at this point it seems like it runs semi autonomously with with some moderation and and things like that but but it is it is really this uh bridging organization to bring people together and share these experiences what mm-hmm. do you foresee for the future of grad grid do you, do you think maybe some in person social events networking uh panel discussions any anything that you can see on the horizon that maybe wouldn't take up too much of your uh your time not spent at work yeah
1: yeah no i think that's an excellent question i mean and you know this is something that we kept having discussions as the community managers and uh, i i do distinctly remember like for i think almost most of 2020 and certainly all of 2021 and then even the early part of 2022 like in-person events would always be like, no, like there were strong sentiments uh, uh, against it. But now I feel like that I think there's people are more prone to more, more, keen on having face-to-face interaction. At least, um, I don't know how it is uh, in in your neck of the woods, but we are almost having forced getting to know each other events now. And I mean, it's forced for yeah. a certain group of people as opposed to others, because I think I love meeting people at work, and I just love meeting and hearing about stories uh, of of folks in and around the these in and around these STEM fields, but. Uh, yeah, no, I think certainly in-person events is something that's, that's on the, that's on the cards. Uh, yeah, we do have plans for panel discussions and fireside chats, uh, that, uh, on the platform, um, to, to, to sort of again have this ability to, um, uh, to reach out to our audience and reach out to the community. And, and it's, it's really driven by uh, a strong sense of almost uh, altruism at this point. But again, the idea being like you're kind of paying it forward like i truly believe i am where i am because someone sort of showed me the path or helped me get here and and it's just my turn to pay it forward as and do so as a community and and you're right that uh in terms of doing it via um like chats and panel discussions that's that's certainly on the cards and hopefully uh, there'll be some announcements soon and grid to that end uh in-person events uh, yes we should get to it now that people are more keen on doing so
0: <laughs> yeah well it's a really noble effort and anupam thanks for um for joining us today on the hopkins biotech podcast it was really a pleasure hearing about your story and and um hearing about what you've done with the grad grid and um, how it can progress into the future. So thank you. Absolutely. Thank you for joining us. Don't forget to follow Hopkins biotech podcast on social media at Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter for updates about upcoming guests and visit us at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com to check out our full catalog of episodes. I'm Joe Varielli. Thank you for listening.